This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Psych Debates. It's Dr. Monty Altohami, your favorite psychiatry resident. With me today is Dr. Jonathan Demais, my Hello. co-host for this episode, and my favorite psychiatry resident and an overall amazing guy. Aw. We are joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Alan Francis, a giant in the field of psychiatry, professor and chairman emeritus at Duke Psychiatry and a leading figure behind the DSM-4, the Diagnosis and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the previous edition. We're so excited for this episode and that we could have him um, open up our podcast as our inaugural guest. Um, At the crux of this debate is the existential question around psychiatry itself. Should psychiatry exist? One might think the simple answer is yes. Um, well, stick around for this debate. This house regrets the rise of anti-psychiatry and you shall find the answer. What do you think, Jonathan? I don't know. I'm not sure. Does it <laughs> exist? We'll find out. Uh, the way we improve the quality of debates is we put the egos of combatants aside by assigning the debate positions based off random assignment. The positions we debate do not represent the positions that we would normally hold or our personal opinions, but based on that assignment and does not represent the positions of any institutions we belong to. Yes, our uh, opinions, however vague and uninformed, are our own. And are not medical opinions, obviously. This is a uh, show for an educational reasons and for us to learn a little bit more about psychiatry and um, exciting topics such as this. Uh, without any further delay, the Psych Debate House calls on a motion for debate, and we begin with the proposition speaker, who will be me, today, to argue against the rise of anti-psychiatry in the motion, This House Regrets the Rise of Anti-Psychiatry. The healthy nature of any debate comes with proponents and opponents, and in any form is beneficial, and the House accepts this. Yet it would be unthinkable to be dealing with an anti-cardiology anti-pediatric or anti-surgery movement. This is exactly what formulated around psychiatry. The current anti-psychiatry movement is made of loosely associated groups and the term itself was actually first coined by a psychiatrist, Dr. David Cooper. It initially started as a group of intellectuals operating in the academic realm but today consists of consumer groups, social scientists, philosophers, writers, as well as psychologists and psychiatrists. Its views range. In the extreme end, groups funded by certain religious organizations and even prestigious academic institutions call for the abolition of psychiatry. This not only comes with getting rid of psychiatrists and their work, but also psychiatric medication and diagnoses, meaning that those with psychiatric illness are not actually ill, And for example, instead of viewing a patient with schizophrenia as someone with an illness, we should simply see them as a liar. As the late Dr. Thomas Saz, a psychiatrist himself and a huge proponent of anti-psychiatry stated, others see it as a form of state control and call for its complete dissolution, while others align themselves with the more specific criticism of psychiatry, which, which is now called critical psychiatry. This group is on the more moderate side, 
but still view themselves as unhappy with the direction that psychiatry is moving, citing concerns about the pharmaceutical industry, the quality of research, and unscrupulous doctors who over-medicate their patients. If psychiatry is abolished, all those with mental illnesses would be left to fend for themselves, may be end in jail or in the street, or to live a life of confinement, ridicule, and shame. This is why we believe that the anti-psychiatry movement serves as fuel for stigmatization, disinterest in the well-being of patients, and hampers the quest for knowledge. And this has real-world consequences, as the stigmatization of the field can lead to less people seeking care, and it can result in more violence and harm towards the psychiatric patient, as their complaints are dismissed as myth, and it allows room for others to come in and take advantage of this group. Secondly, and unfortunately, there are hundreds of thousands of people with mental health illnesses currently in jail in the United States. This is in part due to the lack of key social safety nets and infrastructure that leads to their slippery slope down to the bottom. A major point that is brought up by the anti-psychiatry movement is that involuntary commitment to a psychiatric hospital is a violation of rights. We argue that being in jail with a mental health issue is way more cruel and a greater violation of human rights, thus demonstrating the lack lack of foresight that some of the proponents of this movement have. Most of them, which have kept away in their practice, and have not really come across those with really severe mental health issues. Furthermore, the drive for research continues to depend on resources, and these resources, whether they be private or federal, depend on public opinion. Psychiatry's neuroscientific basis is still in its infancy. Although the age of asylums has ended with the advent of many psychotropic medications, there is still much needed research not only in the psychopharmacology realm and the neuroscientific realm, but also to support current clinical practice and therapy. The anti-psychiatry movement serves as a barrier to this, as they create an image of psychiatry not too dissimilar to the image portrayed of those suffering from mental health issues or episodes, as having no basis in biology, but rather an evil institution. Oh, hello, my name is Jonathan Namias, post-graduation year one psychiatry resident at Duke University Health System. I'm here to argue for the modification of psychiatry as a medical field. In essence, I'll be providing an anti-psychiatry stance to address the major pitfalls within the field of psychiatry. So let me set the stage of the argument with a case report. Specific aspects to the story, such as a name and the age of the patient, will have been changed to respect the privacy of the patient. So this is a 44-year-old African-American woman with a past psychiatric history of nothing who was brought to the emergency department by the police in handcuffs due to quote-unquote bizarre behavior. She was walking outside in her neighborhood yelling and screaming. So she was held involuntarily overnight, evaluated by psychiatry, and psychiatry diagnosed her with schizophrenia and intellectual disability, and then she was placed on a locked psychiatric floor and given antipsychotic medications. She was soon after found to have a urinary tract infection and treated with antibiotics. Her odd behavior stabilized, but she remained on antipsychotics and on the psychiatry floor until a safe place for her to live was established. She ended up waiting several months for a place to open up. 
Meanwhile, developing the medication side effect drug-induced Parkinsonism, causing shaking, difficulty walking, difficulty expressing herself, talking, making emotional expressions in her face. I met her on the third month of her hospitalization, and after reading through her entire medical history on the chart, I did not see that she had met criteria for schizophrenia, and she had no formal evaluation for intellectual disability. I removed her antipsychotics, and thus her side effects improved. I discussed the case further with her and her family, and actually determined the most likely diagnosis was delirium, or confusion, in the setting of dementia. Had she been placed in a facility before I'd removed her antipsychotics, she may very well have lived her whole life on these medicines. This is not an uncommon story in psychiatry, and this illustrates some of the major pitfalls within psychiatry. One of these is that the psychiatric, uh, psychiatric diagnoses are faulty. The DSM is the, the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry is used to uh, classify psychiatric disorders that we give our patients. It tells us what we would give a patient a diagnosis, but it was actually based on a small group of people um, and their perspective of what is normal and what is not normal. There's significant overlap between these conditions and poor history gathering and assessments can actually lead to an incorrect diagnosis like in this story. It's actually become easier and easier over time with the various iterations of the DSM as well. We're on DSM-5 now for somebody to be diagnosed with a disorder, even in cases where it's very mild and perhaps even closer to normal human behavior. Furthermore, the, the system as it's designed is to provide uh, is actually designed to provide significant treatment for the rich and mildly ill compared to the poor and severely ill. Furthermore, there is not really a known brain pathology that is can be translated from research, from neuroscience research, into the psychiatric diagnoses we give our patients. The research hasn't caught up with it yet. The second major point I want to get across is that psychiatric medications can be harmful. Just as in this story, patients can get side effects. We don't actually really know how these medicines work. Uh, it could possibly alter someone's brain in harmful ways in subgroups of people. We really don't know. The uh, medications also, in addition to causing side effects, may not actually provide a whole lot of benefit for many people. Furthermore, if somebody stops taking these medicines, then they can have withdrawal symptoms, a phenomenon known as dependence. The third major point I want to get across is psychiatry has now become an extension of the, the legal system. If somebody hits somebody, they go to jail. If somebody threatens to hit somebody, they come to us. They come to the psychiatric emergency department. Many times it's arbitrarily whether or not they have a psychiatric diagnosis or not. Uh, but if they end up seeing us, they'll more than likely get a psychiatric diagnosis and be labeled for the rest of their life, which can be harmful in and of itself. This is an important discussion. Antipsychiatry is important to place checks and balances on the current system of psychiatry. It can be done to challenge the paternalistic practices of psychiatry, serving as a voice for th of those who have no voice. This is helpful even in something that is potentially a helpful field because Research has shown that if one points out the flaws within a field or a therapy or a study, then it can lead to improving that study. So it's a very important discussion to have. We're so excited for today's guest. Uh, he's a very much an expert in a field of experts, uh, and we're so excited about having him. Dr. Alan Francis uh, is with us here today. He's a professor and chairman emeritus of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Duke University Hospital. Uh, Dr. Alan Francis was the chair of the task force for writing the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fourth edition. 
He is also the founding editor of the journal Personality Disorders and the Journal of Psychiatric Practice, as well as authoring, co-authoring a number of major books within the field of psychiatry and psychology. Welcome, Dr. Francis. Good to have you. Wonderful to be back with you at Duke. Um, and uh, we are glad to have you with us here on the podcast. Uh, what does anti-psychiatry mean to you? Well, first of all, in some ways, we should all be anti-psychiatrists in the sense that we should all be humble about our profession. We should love it, but see its faults and be self-critical and open to change and advocating for change. The anti-psychiatry movement, which started in the United States and in the UK 50, 60 years ago, is a, an effort to um, criticize psychiatry such that the underpinnings of the field are attacked. That the um, many of, of the anti-psychiatrists have very good points to make, but they carry them too far. Uh, medicine is very much overprescribed in the United States and the UK, but the anti-psychiatrists will often say it should never be prescribed. Um, medicine can cause many harmful side effects, but anti-psychiatrists will say that it actually causes the illness, that the uh, psychotic patients get worse taking antipsychotics rather than better. Uh, there's been a history, a long history that I hope we have time to discuss, of excessive coercion of psychiatric patients wearing the, warehousing them in terrible state hospitals. Antipsychiatrists assume that that's still happening now and are against all coercion, or almost all coercion, and state that patients, however psychotic, however suicidal, should be able to have a free choice to kill themselves. So as I see it, we should all be anti-psychiatry in the sense that psychiatry is very, very, very far from perfect. And we can dis discuss if we have time and interest how it's imperfect. But anti-psychiatry goes overboard and finds it almost evil and counterproductive for everyone who's engaged in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting position. Um, you know, I think that we don't really get taught as, as uh, you know, psychiatric residents to be uh, critical of psychiatry in that way. Uh, we are taught to think critically. Uh, what do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, no, exactly. We're taught to, I mean, we're taught in medical school, these are the things you should know about psychiatry. And then once we get into psychiatry residency, we're taught this is the things that we should do for our individual patients based on what we learn in medical school is what we're calling this person as sick. But I, I, I have to say, Dr. Francis, I'm really curious. I, I, you mentioned a lot there in that opening statement. I think we could probably talk for a while on any one of those points. But one thing I wanted to follow up on, did you say, should people be allowed to kill themselves if they, even if they have a mental disorder? Well, it's very interesting. There, there were three books in 1961 that initiated the anti-psychiatry movement. There was no coincidence they came out at the same time, the exact same year. One was by Thomas Saws, The Myth of Mental Illness. The other was by Irving Goffman, Asylums. And the third was by Michel Foucault, The History of Madness. And they all came out very strongly for the idea that psychiatry was a state-sponsored way of coercing people, of controlling the population certainly not directed to helping the mentally ill, but rather to control them and to serve as an arm of the state. Tom Saws was the most libertarian of the three and argued strongly that suicide was a personal choice and that uh, people should be allowed to make it. I had a dinner with Tom in, I guess it was in 1976 or 77. And I asked him, Tom, if your daughter were about to kill herself right here and now, 
and she refused any intervention, any treatment. Would you, as her father, allow her to do it? Or would you be inclined towards involuntary commitment? Tom was a very charming, brilliant guy. He paused for maybe a minute or two, smiled, a crooked smile, and said, I'm a father first and a libertarian second. So this tests the question. His followers, including his daughter, who was at the dinner, were very angry at his answer. His followers have never acknowledged that there might be certain extreme situations where coercion is life-saving and many extreme situations where coercion in the psychiatric system prevents much worse coercion in the prison system. So we now have 350,000 patients in prison, partly because it's so hard to get involuntary commitment now, partly because there are no beds. The psychiatric, it's very easy to get out of a hospital. It's almost impossible now to get into one. The, the argument I've had with modern anti-psychiatry proponents on both sides of the Atlantic is we have to be very careful not to allow a return of the um, involuntary hospitalizations that filled state hospitals with, at that point, 700,000 patients. But now there are only 35,000 patients in the United States in hospital beds. We now have a, the concern that our patients are forced into prison because they couldn't get treatment. And it's no favor, it's not a civil rights bonus for someone who's psychotic to not get psychiatric treatment when they need it and instead wind up in a long prison sentence. In those days, Saw said that prison was, was really better than hospitals because the sentences were, were defined and treatment couldn't be forced on the people. In our age, that's a completely ridiculous position because the sentences in prison are very long. Hospitalizations in the psychiatric system are very short. So the whole coercion issue has to be done with common sense in the same way that medication and ECT have to be described with common sense. And very often the antipsychiatrists have a good point up to a point, but then carry it far too far in the direction that makes them extreme and clinically unwise. You know, I agree. I agree with, with kind of the major principles there. I, I do believe that, you know, society is changing and, uh, you know, at a certain time, uh, the state hospitals were filled with psychiatric patients and we were uh, over committing patients. Are you saying now that you wish for a return of, you know, this the asylum state, for instance, where patients, you know, very ill patients that are not going to really be able to exist in the communities to, to, to reestablish more that grounds as opposed to them going into prisons, for instance? Well, I actually worked in snake, snake pits, a number of them in the mid-60s mid and early 70s, and they, they were as dreadful as you see them in the movies. Uh, they were dirty. They were terribly overcrowded. Uh, hospitals that were meant to have several hundred patients had many thousands of patients. They were understaffed. There was no treatment um, or, or treatment that was given very, very poorly and without follow-up. I have absolutely no desire to see that return. The community psychiatry movement, which started in the early 60s, and I worked in that as well, had great promise that with the new medications and with the switching of funds from the state hospitals to the community psychiatry clinics in, in the community, that this could result in a decent life for people. The Reagan administration, 1980, stopped the funding. They allowed the states not to support the community settings that were meant to be the replacement for the state hospitals. And ironically enough, that money is now spent on state prisons. 
So I'm not at all in favor of having the old system of huge state hospitals. I am in favor of an enormously increased investment in community psychiatry and in decent housing. If you don't have decent housing, and America doesn't, for, for many people without mental illness, and certainly the, the most vulnerable part of the population, those with mental illness, have, have very little access to a decent place to live, those people wind up either in jail or on the street. What we need to do is get the, the patients out of prison. And this is where psychiatric self-criticism self is important. No one should feel comfortable being a psychiatrist today with the current state of psychiatry. Having 350,000 of our patients in prison is a shame on our society, but it's also a shame on us that we allow this to happen. And so we need to work very hard to getting the facilities in the community, both housing and treatment, facilities in the community that avoid prison and avoid homelessness. Um, I think that there will be some patients who require uh, a protected environment, but places that do it well. Trieste, I say, is the best place in the world to be mentally ill. And for people in prisons or homeless, the United States is the worst place. If you have good community services, very few people will need that long-term asylum. The problem in America is that we don't have good community services. We don't yeah. have hospital beds and the patients are caught in the middle and the most severely ill, the most vulnerable wind up in prison or homeless. Do you feel like, you know, just, just to kind of go along with what you're saying here, do you think that we as psychiatrists just start playing a, a role of a political role? Um, you know, it feels like we have to do a dance with not only the medical aspect and the societal aspect of things, but in, for instance, housing, which is very critical to mental illness and mental well-being, um, and the care of patients with psychiatric illness is really outside our realm. Um, it's not, we, we're not lawyers and we're not policymakers most of the time. If we are, it's outside of our profession. Uh, what, how, how can psychiatrists and how can patients um, kind of push for more changes in those directions? Well, I think the American Psychiatric Association has been very timid in pursuing uh, what I think should be its major mission, and that is taking um, an advocacy, a strong advocacy and political position that the current situation is untenable. I think that we can't see psychiatry as a straight biological um, endeavor. So I, I, I'm a strong advocate for the biopsychosocial and spiritual approach to psychiatry that it's rounded that sees the social determinants of mental illness as being very powerful predictors of who gets sick and who doesn't, who gets sick in a way that's treatable and who's untreatable, who winds up in prison and why. And socioeconomic factors account for a very large part of the variance in the, in the cause and the consequences of mental illness. I think that the psychiatrists in general, and I understand I've worked in, in difficult systems and I understand the limited power you have to change the system you work in. I'm not naive about this because I failed. I look back at my career and say I failed. Uh, the people who I care about are worse off now than they were 60 years ago, 55 years ago when I started my career. That it, it, We cannot feel comfortable as psychiatrists with so many of our people in prison or on the streets. And I think that too often psychiatrists get boxed into the position where they get to see people for 15 minutes for med medication uh, prescriptions and for follow-up med checks every couple of months where they can't really get to know the patient very well, where the psychological and social determinants and the meaning in the person's life aren't part of the evaluation because there's just no time. And I think we have to fight for our profession to be 
given the time to really get to know our patients. Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago, it's more important to know the patient who has the disease than the disease the patient has. And if we just focus on doing a checklist DSM, evalu DSM evaluation and the straightforward writing a prescription after a 20 minute evaluation, we can't get to know our patients. And we have to, I think as a profession at large and in each individual clinician, try to fight for enough time to get to know our patients and to provide them with adequate care. We can't just be soldiers in the system that's doing a bad job. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I completely agree. And I, I resonate with a lot of what you're saying. I think that when we think of psychiatry as strictly, we're the people that give medicines that change the way the brain works, then we're, we're missing a huge part of the picture. There is that biopsychosocial model that, that people live. And who's to say that we're the person, the person who doesn't even know this patient, doesn't know this person, to say, this is what you need. You need this medicine to make your life better. When in reality, you know, Monty and I, in our, our first years of residency, we see a lot of inpatient psychiatry. Most, a lot of people just need a place to live. A lot of people need to be outside of their, their house where there's maybe drug use. A lot of people need just you know, somebody to, to listen to them, to give them, to just walk their hand through this confusing system. Um, and, and you're right, people, people have just fall, fallen through the cracks. Um, I think that one of the things that is very frustrating for Monty and I and our, our, our current uh, residency group is that we see a lot of patients in our, when we're on our psychiatric emergency department rotation um, and the inpatient as well, uh, part of our residency training, where patients just live in the hospital. They just they live there and there aren't those community resources like what you're describing, Dr. Francis. And and so people just stay in the hospital and not only are they suffering, but I mean, it's so expensive to just live in a hospital, like a, a $1,500 a day, at least for a doctor to be coming by when you just need a place to live. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you, Jonathan. Uh, it, it's sometimes very difficult to deal with that as, you know, especially coming out of medical school and just kind of viewing psychiatry in a really medical way uh, mm -hmm. where, you know, pharmaceuticals and uh, kind of trying to understand the pinnings, whether it's through deductive reasoning or other ways of the psychiatric illness and seeing that as my main role. But coming to residency, realizing I'm not, you know, psychiatry is not, you know, walled off. It exists in a world. And this world has many factors that play uh, into psychiatric care. Um, and the interesting part is neuroscience, which I, I see a lot of advancements in. But, you know, you, you say, uh, Dr. Allen, uh, Francis, you say that, you know, you're not really seeing the translation of those things over your career, 50, 60 years. And you do say that you feel like you failed in that sense. What what are what are where should psychiatry go from here? Well, first off, let's be clear that the biopsychosocial model was born in America. Adolf Meyer was the first great American psychiatrist. And um, the term itself was was um, first used by Engels, and I think it was 1977. And we had the best biopsychosocial psychiatry in the world from about 1960 until 1963 with Kennedy until about 1980 with Reagan. Things turned partly because the drug industry came out with this propaganda that everything was a chemical disorder, a chemical imbalance that required a chemical solution. Uh, they bear a lot of guilt for brainwashing both doctors and patients about this. The NIMH took a terribly wrong turn. So I was on an NIMH committee in, 19, in the 1980s, 
and we funded um, Timbex CBT and Marshall Enhanced DBT with very small amounts of money. Those two innovations in psychotherapy are responsible for helping tens of millions of people all over the world. All of the NIMH neuroscience research done over the last 40 years hasn't helped a single patient yet. But that translation, the brain is the most complicated thing in the known universe. Uh, the genetics of mental illness turn out to be have incomparably, incomparably com complex permutations with no clear answers of how genetics translates to mental disorder, much less specific mental disorders. The NIMH started the decade of the brain in 1990, and it stopped doing clinical research. At this point, less than 10% of the NIMH budget is for clinical studies, and even they have to be tied to biological markers. The whole effort to create biological markers in psychiatry has failed. So that from my perspective, we've spent a tremendous amount of money on a fascinating intellectual adventure, learning more about the brain and about the um, genetics of, of, uh, of people without being able to translate any of that into clinical improvements. And I don't see the future being very different. If there were low-hanging fruit in genetics or in brain imaging, we would have already made discoveries that would be helpful. So I'm for, all for spending more money, more attention on the patients we have today without making false promises that the research is going to improve their life in the future. We should be continuing. Psychiatric research is wonderful. And we should be continuing to, to try to endeavor how the brain works and how genes work. But we shouldn't be putting all of our bets, 90% or more of our bets, on biological research. Now, similarly, in the clinical situation, if you have only 20 minutes with a patient, those 20 minutes shouldn't just be for signs, symptoms, and medication prescription. That even in very brief contacts with patients, you can make a big difference. Um, I, I worked in, when I was at Duke and in all of my career, I always spent three or four mornings a week in the emergency room, supervising the residents in the emergency room, because I thought that was the most important place to understand the system and also to help uh, influence Absolutely. the system. And the most interesting things happen in the emergency room. Yeah. One of the things I discovered over, over 35 years of working in emergency rooms, I could be with someone for 15 minutes, not remember their face, not remember their history say something during that session. And they would come up to me years later and say, you know, doc, you said something that changed my life. I've done psychotherapy with people for 10 years and not had any effect on them. So I, I don't think we should underestimate the power of a human contact at a particular crucial, critical, difficult, worst moment in the person's life to be able to say something that can make a difference. And with every meeting, however brief, I'd be trying to find something that will connect that will form a relationship that counts and that may, I may be able to say something that they'll remember into the future in a way that'd be helpful. You should always have the biopsychosocial model, whatever the contact, and that's also true for doctors and general medicine. The general medicine is also a biopsychosocial practice. 80% of outcomes in general medicine have to do with um, social factors, social variables. So none of us should ever feel that we're just doing a medication prescription for a biological problem. That doesn't exist in this world. In this world, we have to get to know our patients and figure out things to say that will help them. Yeah, so I'm, absolutely. Go ahead, Jonathan. No, no, I was just curious. I The way you're phrasing this makes me think, and I think you're absolutely right. Our, our priorities are such that 
we focus so much on medicine and, and even in psychiatry training, our first two years, we don't get very much psychotherapy training or just that like one-on-one patient interaction training. I'm wondering if you have any advice for just starting out resident psychiatrists or even anybody who may be listening who's interested in psychiatry. What can we do so that we're not boxed in on this, this just pure medications model? Well, I think some of it, as you mentioned before, is political. That political means trying to change the system that you're working in, uh, trying to change the larger system, working the APA to try to get it to change. But I think that for most people, that's not going to be uh, a viable um, solution. The big systems are hard to change. But all of us can make each moment count with each patient. And I think that the more the program, it doesn't have to be it shouldn't be formal psychotherapy training in the first year or two because you're not doing formal psychotherapy, but it should be, how do I get to form quick relationships with people? How do I get to size them up quickly? How sure. do I find out what I'm good at, not so good at? How do I overcome my, my blank spots? How do I learn to phrase things in a way that will be most useful? How do I educate people? Because really that's the most important thing in the first couple of years of your work. How can I, anything in psychiatry that isn't said simply is probably not being said best. That there's nothing in our field that can't be explained well if we learn how to explain it. How can I inspire hope? Very important part of of every contact with every patient is inspiring realistic hope. Patients come to us demoralized, often the worst moment in their life. And how can we find in a difficult situation advice that may help and a hopeful message about the problems they have that will give them some sense that this is not the end of the line. It's just the beginning of a possible better future. Yeah, that's, th- those are really interesting points that we just discussed in the last kind of set of questions. I did want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about you know genetic markers and a lot of the research funding now going towards clinical practice. Um, do you view us currently as cavemen in terms of our scientific knowledge, or do you view that this is not an area for scientific research, or rather this is something that should be diverted to a different focus? Well, the NIMH budget in the 80s was balanced so that there was a goodly amount of money spent on, in the 70s, we suddenly got CAT scans, fMRIs, mm-hmm. CAT scans, all within three years. So these amazing toys. In the 80s, we just began to be doing genetic studies. And then in the 90s to early 2000s, we could do the genome. The NIMH was headed by people who were exclusively interested in biological research. Some of them, Tom Insel regrets it at this point. Now that he's no longer head, looks back and says we did too much. The um, excitement of the cool tools that we had for study and the fascinating questions about how the brain works and maybe how genes translate into, um, into behavior. All of this led us on a somewhat, exa- not somewhat, a very exaggerated emphasis on biological research, ignoring clinical research, psychotherapy research, um, health services research. I think we, should, we need a balanced agenda. I'm not suggesting that we stop doing the brilliant, interesting, um, in some ways, artistic research in the brain and genes, but we can't expect them to deliver. And originally, mm-hmm. Tom used to say he didn't want to do iron lungs for the mentally ill. He wanted to cure them. We're not going to have cures based on genetics or based on biology in our lifetimes, maybe ever. If it could have been done easily, we would have been doing it. Uh, the drug companies have left the field of 
neuro, neuroscience and um, psychiatric research because there are no easy answers. Mm-hmm. We have to, I think, look at the suffering of the patients and their families and say, this can't be ignored on the false promise that we're going to have a breakthrough drug that's going to cure all the problems that they're experiencing. We have to do research. We have to devote clinical funds to providing the best treatment we can provide now. And we're a tremendous outlier in this. So I I would much prefer to be uh, be in treatment in most European countries. The amount of money devoted to adequate clinical care and social safety nets in the United States is shameful. And the amount of money devoted to high-powered fancy stuff is to some degree at least wasted. And so we have to rebalance the agenda and care about the people who are suffering now, not just imagine that we'll have fancy tech solutions in the future. Yeah. Oh, I, I feel again, that's I, I feel like I'm living that like where uh, the United States is this place where you can get, say, the best cancer treatment in the world. And like MD Anderson, I think of or, you know, Harvard or all those fancy we names. And, and yeah, and we do. We do. Exactly. But then there's this <laughs> there's this mountain of of lack of resources for just the everyday person that we don't have in this country, um, which which really it, it makes me wonder, like, are we are we prioritizing or are we at least this is what it seems like. Are we intentionally prioritizing the few rich compared to the many poor? And why is that? I wonder what partly because the rich have the power and the money and partly because the um, the companies that cater to the rich are the ones who determine how health care is delivered so that other countries made a commitment to having universal health care uh, going back in some places 100 years in some places 50 years. And we've never made that commitment to providing decent, everyday, practical um, health care, minimal health care for everyone. And as a result, I think we have this terrible imbalance that's only been made worse by COVID mm-hmm. and that you're struggling with every day in your, in your clinical practice. So I'm not telling you to go out and, and uh, barricade the hospital or to um, <laughs> you know, be, be politically active in a way that you don't have the time and maybe the inclination for. But I am saying if you, you need to be aware of the system you're working in. Mm-hmm. Insofar as you can help make changes in it, you should try. And your system is a system that will tolerate change. You can't change the world, but you may be able to change to some useful degree Duke psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, in your day-to-day practice with each patient, don't get so swallowed up in the model that you're not um, fully aware of the human element, the the, the person there is suffering. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that what you say and do in that even brief session can make a difference. There's really these little things that we can do that we just we just don't think of, right? There's, there's every day we can devote ourselves to trying to make things better around us rather than just kind of going through the motions. It does take, it does take this effort though. It takes this conceited, the concern. I want to do this. I feel like. Absolutely. I don't think it's optimized at all. Um, and, uh, I, you know, what I think is interesting is, and, and this is, you know, in terms of the clinical sense, you know, medications, um, ultimately do help patients. Um, and, medications are responsible in large uh, for the kind of resolution of the asylums that you were mentioning, Dr. Alan Francis, earlier. That the reason we don't have patients in those squalid conditions and a lot of people have had their lives changed based on that. So how do we 
how do we get to ensure that we're doing that tight tight rope walk and not becoming over you know over prescribers but at the same time not forgetting that a lot of what we do has other components to it which is you know the social components psychological components the political components the biggest fight i've had over the last uh, 10 years or so has been with the anti-psychiatry movement defending medication so on the one hand i've been critical of over medication but actually most of that uh, not all of it, but most of the over-medication is done by primary care doctors. 80% of psychiatric medicine is prescribed by primary care doctors. 90% of benzos, benzos are awful meds. 90% of them are prescribed by primary care doctors. 80% of antidepressants, um, 60% of stimulants, and 50% of antipsychotics are not prescribed by psychiatrists. So I agree with the antipsychiatrists who think that we do too much and, and specifically primary care doctors do too much prescribing of psych drugs. But my major issues where I get into controversies, and this sometimes it's debates, you know, live debates, sometimes it's um, writings back and forth, is with the antipsychiatrists who say that we don't need medication and that ECT doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, ECT is the most powerful, wonderful treatment in psychiatry. If I had a severe depression, I'd want to be treated with ECT. And certainly for people, does Duke still have a very active program? Very active, yeah. Yeah. Certainly for severely ill patients, nothing works like ECT works. To say that ECT doesn't work can only be done largely in Britain by psychologists who've never treated a severely ill patient. In order to be very fixed on an anti-psychiatry point of view, you have to be one of two things. You can be a clinician who's never treated severely ill people. Tom Saws managed his whole life never to treat a psychotic patient. He managed throughout his residence. He changed programs so he wouldn't have to treat a psychotic person. How in the world? Yeah, He actually moved from Chicago to Syracuse when he was asked to see psychotic people on an inpatient ward. He would not do it based on principle. So anything Tom Saws said about psychosis was based on theory and libertarianism. It wasn't based on clinical experience. The people in Britain who are against ECT and doing their best to get it outlawed have never seen severely ill patients. They don't understand what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think that the um, we have to strongly defend the aspects of psychiatry that are under attack by anti-psychiatry because our patients really require it. And the debates mm-hmm. I have, I throw in the face of the anti-psychiatrist. When you're saying these things, you're being irresponsible to the person who needs the treatment. You're being irresponsible to the person who won't take medication and winds up in prison. You have to worry as much as I do about the people who wind up in prison or homeless because they didn't get treatment because involuntary treatment wasn't possible, even mm-hmm. though they desperately needed it. The people who are strongest in anti-psychiatry in America today have a very legitimate beef as far as they're concerned. So most of them were way overdiagnosed and way overtreated when they were young. Mm-hmm. They were called schizophrenic when they weren't. They got tons of medication, which made them worse. They stopped the medication at some point and they got better. From their own personal experience, psychiatry was not helpful. It's mm-hmm. a lesson to us to be careful about overdi- psychiatric diagnosis should be written in pencil. And we should be very careful early on in a patient's career not to overdiagnose. It's easy to up-diagnose, very hard to remove. It's haunting once you get a, a severe illness diagnosis. On the other hand, they don't understand because their lived experience is based on their own experience. They don't understand there, there are other people for whom ECT or medication is life-saving. 
And I think what we have to do is to present a self-critical psychiatry, but one that's also able to defend those things in our field that are noble and wonderful. And the um, anti-psychiatrists are too much on the side of everything's terrible. The people who run NIH and NIMH and who runs many clinical programs in America are too much on the side of it's all just internal medicine and you give a pill and nothing else matters. And we have to defend the, the precious middle ground, which is where American psychiatry started with Adolf Meyer and George Engel, the precious middle ground of a biopsychosocial, humanistic, caring psychiatry that is interested in each person's experience, not just in writing a prescription. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd like to add on to the point about, you know, creating this stigma, because I feel like psychiatry already comes has that burden for, for better mm -hmm. or worse. Um, you know, historically, uh, the psychiatric patient was stigmatized and by relation, the person who cares for the psychiatric patient, whoever they may be. And I feel like sometimes the conversation is not happening with the same language, that it's happening at different levels. As you mentioned, somebody might be referring to patients that are not as severely ill and shouldn't have been giving medications. Mm -hmm. A psychiatrist who's working in patient, perhaps in a state hospital or uh, an acute setting might see very sick patients that really do require medications. And that is the only solution. Um, and in, the, in that realm, psychotherapy might not work. And so how do we how do we balance being critical as psychiatrists, but at the same time, fight an avalanche and a wave of stigma towards the care we provide and, uh, and the stigma towards our patients? Well, I've tried not very successfully. I think that one of the things we have to realize is that the worst stigma to psychiatry comes from the fact that our patients aren't being treated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you read about the latest cop killing and there's one third chance the person who he shot had a mental illness because that person was untreated and not able to control themselves in the community and cops for weird reasons are first responders. And that's part of why so many of our patients wind up in jail. No worse mm -hmm. stigma than that. There's no anti-stigma campaign, however good they are, however many athletes say they have depression. That's not going to cure the stigma if Los Angeles is filled with homeless people acting strangely in the street because they don't have treatment, because they don't have a place to live. The best way to cure stigma is to be decent in the way you treat people, have decent housing, have access to care. Second issue, when a cancer doctor prescribes terribly poisonous cancer treatments, and the patient suffers tons of side effects and then dies anyway. No one blames the doctor. Absolutely. They blame, they blame the illness. Mm -hmm. Because psychiatry is so personal, I think, when a psychiatric patient takes medicine, which causes side effects, and they do cause side effects, and doesn't get a response, and we can't expect that the medicine is going to be effective with everyone. If we're lucky, it's going to be effective with maybe two-thirds of the people who take it at best. The natural tendency is to blame the psychiatrist and to blame psychiatry. So I think we have to make clear what our boundaries, our limits are, that we're not, we don't have magic medicines. We have medicines that are about as effective as medicines in general are in medicine. That in some ways, they're much better to take than cancer medicines, which mm -hmm. cause so much more damage and so less benefit. The risk-benefit ratio in psychiatry is a lot better than it is in oncology. And that we're not magicians, but we can offer, we do offer, which for many people is a life-enhancing and some people a life-saving service. And that we care, that we're, we want to hear every person who doesn't um, 
feel that they got the right treatment and, and, and try to understand because we learn from each instance that we're going to work hard to not overtreat. We're going to work hard to make sure that we don't take me give medicines for uh, problems that don't need them, that we don't give medicines forever for problems that are shorter term, mm -hmm. but that basically there are people who are in desperate trouble without our medicines and without us. And the best way to remove stigma is if we're able to give people treatment that prevents them from having to be um, not themselves and have psychotic episodes on the street. Um, getting people into housing, decent housing, would be the mm -hmm. best anti-stigma campaign we could possibly do. Yeah, bravo. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just <laughs> treat them like human beings. Imagine that. Uh, there, there's so much in that, what you've just said. And, and I think it may even be difficult for those who aren't a part of psychiatry to even conceptualize how patients are treated or not treated. But there's so much that we can do by talking with them to decide what is the right medicine. I, I actually reminds me of uh, very recently I had a patient in the inpatient setting who he, he, he had a schizoaffective disorder, so a chronic psychotic disorder where he would hear voices and he did not want a medicine to affect sexual function for him. And so I, I, I was like, hey, look, I think this is the right medicine for you. But he's like, no, 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 that, that affected you know, my sexual function, my manhood is what he said. And so I was like, oh, but I think this is really the right one for you. And this went on for about a week. And finally, I printed out some articles. I went and I found all the evidence I could find, which there's really not a whole lot, but of the antipsychotics, which ones are more likely to cause sexual dysfunction, which ones aren't. And I, I printed them out. I, I gave them to him and I went over it with him. And we had this share. We had this like goals of care discussion with the patient, which I I, I certainly was never taught to do that in psychiatry. We see this in other specialties sometimes, but really involving the patient. And, and, and I think maybe part of this is that a, per, a person that has psychosis, perhaps where has, or at least I personally have been hesitant to want to explain everything because I'm afraid, well, what are they going to think if I give them this medicine that I tell them has side effects? They're not going to want to take it then. But then I'm putting myself in that position where I'm saying, well, I know what's best for this patient. I know better than they know. And that, I think, is a huge flaw that, that I've made and that a lot of us make, that we need to have these discussions with our patients and really let them be the ones driving their treatment when they have the ability to do that. Yeah, and just to add on to your point there, Jonathan, I think informed consent is very tricky in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, not only in inpatient setting, I think not a lot of people, just to kind of uh, echo some of the things they're saying, know what psychiatrists do and what psychiatric medications do. Um, and what the side effects would look like. Um, and I think it becomes very tricky to make sure you have the informed consumer, um, mm -hmm. which is key here because ultimately, you know, we're, we're advisors. Um, as physicians, we should be seen as an advisor rather than, um, you know, a figure of authority over someone's life right. that I suggest to you, hey, this is my best medical advice and this is what the research is showing that you should do and therefore you should take that. But in a lot of contexts, we find that um, these, p these patients or uh, people are involuntarily committed and or, you know, so severely ill, depressed, manic, uh, psychotic, that they are not able to grasp these concepts. And one major concept that we come across is paranoia. Uh, and that's where that hesitancy may come from. Right. Um, and w what do we do about informed consent uh, in psychiatry? You know, I, I think that 
first of all, it, it, half of the battle when you're dealing with acutely ill patients is negotiation and education. Mm-hmm. Um, the the, the uh, algorithms for what medicine to give are any, any um, simple-minded person can do that. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what medicine to, to prescribe. The art of the field is figuring out how can you negotiate with someone, teach them, um, figure out what their reactions are in a way that will help them further the treatment for the future. People don't stick with treatments they don't like. Mm-hmm. So they, if they're not part of the decision-making at the front, they're not going to continue to the um, outcome. They're, they're mm-hmm. going to drop it. Um, I think that very few people are psychotic in every aspect of their life at any given moment. So people may be psychotic about certain things, but very reasonable about other things. And our job with any patient is to find a relationship that's able to maximize the reasonableness and the, and the shared um, decision-making about what really counts. And that's exactly what you were doing, providing the papers. You don't want to get into fights where you're seen as the authority figure. And one of the problems, one of the, the ways anti-psychiatry sees us is as these authoritarian, very powerful people. One of the great resentments of, of the anti-psychiatry movement, how powerful we are and our influence over people's lives. They don't realize how powerless we are, mm-hmm. uh, how much we're you know, creatures of our systems, how little influence we have within those systems. Um, we, we have to see ourselves as providing information for informed consent. I've written that it, it would be useful if every medicine required written informed consent to make clear that informed consent is, you can't assume informed consent by having someone not uh, agree with you, not disagree with you, you really have to get a positive affirmation of consent if that person is going to continue. Now, there are emergency situations where I understand you can't do this. And I've given my, a fair number of injections myself in those emergency situations. And I understand that you know we, we can't have the ideal doctor-patient relationship going forward in every situation. But the goal should be that we're making decisions collaboratively rather than um, dictatorially. And it's only the collaborative decisions that are likely to stick. Very important in this is advanced uh, directives. Mm -hmm. So that when people get better after the psychotic episode, even if they were involuntarily treated, the majority feel good about the treatment and glad it happened once they've recovered Mm -hmm. um, from the episode. And that's a moment to begin thinking with them about the future what if this happens again? We're going to work very hard together. You, you, and we, we're going to work really hard so that you don't have a relapse. But relapses happen. And I'd even tell them the percentage odds of relapses over the course of six months, a year. I'm very specific about giving as much information, not in every patient situation, but in most. What, what do you want done then? And maybe we should put that in writing now, because otherwise it's terrible for family members. They feel that they've lost all ability to help their beloved family member. The person's running wild in the streets and there's nothing anyone can do and they wind up in jail. Mm-hmm. What can we do now to prevent the risk that you'll wind up in jail or homeless if you have a relapse in the future? Because that would be the worst possible outcome for you. I'll tell them I visited jails. There's nothing worse than being a psychiatric patient in jail. And we need to plan a life for you that avoids as much as possible hospitalizations and, and even more so jail and homelessness. How do we do that? And the way that for most people to do that is to have an advanced directive so that there's not a battle over what should be done, 
they've been able during their healthy state to predict and to uh, instruct about what should happen if they become ill in the future. I like that. I, I We come up with these safety plans. It's just kind of the standard of care, but I don't know why a psychiatric advance directive is not part of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are, um, there are something that's available in the books. Um, and something I, I, I think we do in, in, in medicine all the time, you know, having had that experience in internal mm-hmm. medicine, we talk about advanced directives the moment um, a patient arrives to the emergency room. Right. Um, and I think, you know, in the setting of psychiatry, I think it would fit very well, um, you know, as the patients get better and become, you know, more lucid or more themselves. Any last words, Jonathan, Dr. Francis, uh, for our audience as we kind of close um, the discussion here, which I thought was really fruitful. And we hope to, to have a continue to have you come back with us again to uh, discuss future topics as well. Um, Jonathan, you first. <laughs> I, I feel like there's so much to be said. Uh, we could probably go on for a long period of time. But I think that just kind of the summary statement is, there for anything, any field of science, it is beneficial to look at what the downsides is of what we're doing. Um, time and time again, research into like even therapies, looking at the downsides, the potential harms in that has led to then improving the way it's done in the future. So this is just a, it's a very needed topic to have. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here talking about it. Every time there's an airplane crash, everyone studies it. We don't, mm-hmm. in medicine, find out from our mistakes and, and, and bad outcomes why they happen. The mm-hmm. last thing I close with is I learned a lot from my, my teachers. I learned a lot from my colleagues. I learned a lot from my friends and my family and my children and grandchildren. I learned the most in life from my patients. And it's an unusual privilege. Uh, it, it's what makes psychiatry so wonderful. Mm-hmm. So there's never a time when you should be too tired for the next patient. Because every one of those experiences is to be cherished. We again appreciate the time that you spent here with us and the information that you've shared with us. Uh, we're excited um, to have you here with us on a podcast and taking time off your busy schedule. You know, ultimately, um, it is a tight rope and we must walk it. I think what's really cool about psychiatry is that it's the most uh, practice of medicine that's applicable to life. And today we've just seen how that extends to not only neuroscience, but society and politics and law and how all those come together uh, to take care of patients. So I really appreciate you and thank you for your time.